So uh, a couple weeks ago, I started a series on most of the story most of people know is the prodigal son. And uh, really, it's more accurately described as the two lost sons and the good father. It's not quite as succinct a title, uh, but, you know, it's more accurate. And the first week, we talked about the younger son. Who's been, who's, most people think about, you think about, because, hey, the prodigal son story, you think about the son that was lost, came back home, and everybody rejoiced, but sometimes the older son gets lost in, the, in this message, and there's really a lot on the older son, and so this week and, and next week, I'm going to be preaching about the older son, and so, and then we, sometimes we, we forget about the father, if we don't, if you don't understand the culture and the context of this story, where it's very patriarchal society, so fathers, you know, there is a very set hierarchy of authority, fathers, landowners, uh, you know, they're at the top of the list. And so, if you turn to Luke 15, if you have your Bibles, we're just going to read through the story again. It's worth doing that, and then we'll uh, get into it. I also want to uh, comment on something Jeremy said towards the end there, talking about he just was reminded about the wrath of God. And, you know, the Lord a few weeks ago actually spoke to me. He said, Travis, I really want you to speak on my behalf about mercy and wrath. And the reason is, just like Jeremy said, if you, um, if there is no wrath, there is no mercy. Right? What's so merciful about being safe when you don't need saving? And so, I had a talk with a friend who um, identifies as a Christian, but he has a real hard time with heaven and hell and other good people not going to heaven, which is older son thinking. And I said, I was like, well, I, I said that this was probably three or four months ago. I told my friend, I said, without wrath, there's no mercy. So, like, what is God saving you from? And what did Jesus die for? If Jesus didn't die to save us from hell and the punishment of sin, then like he was a fool. And we're fools if we follow that. So like why even go through the motions? Like why are we going to church if you don't believe that? If you don't believe that Jesus saves us from our sin, saves us from hell, if you don't believe that, then why? I'm like, I got There's other things. that I, I got chores. I could do that. I got chores at home. So why is this valuable to me to cut out a part of my week to gather with my brothers and sisters? It's because Jesus is worthy. It's because he's merciful. He saved me. I've been born again. So he's, wor he's worth my time. He's worth making a priority in my life. So that's why I do that. And it's because he saved me from hell. Eternity. We have a hard time wrapping our, our brains around that. 
And there was a guy who, uh, I forget his name, but he's got a book called 23 Minutes in Hell. And he, he got up one night to pray, and it was 9 o'clock p.m., and the Lord took him in a, in a very real experience where he felt like he was actually there to hell. And, he's, you know, he talked about, he describes it, and he says, you know, the smell was the worst smell you could ever imagine. Com- utter darkness. There was torment. There was the lake of fire. But he said the, one, the thing that was the worst thing about hell other than those things I just mentioned, was that there was no hope. And because it's, all, it's for all eternity, there is no hope. And I, I thought about it, even when people are at their lowest and they're at their most depressed, they'll, they'll take their lives sometimes. And even in that moment, which is a really dark, low moment, they have a, a glimmer of hope that it will be better. That, that's why they're doing that, right? So even in suicide, there's a glimmer of hope that they're, they're hoping that it will be better than what they're experiencing right now. In hell, there is no hope. And he said that was the worst thing, that you, the sense of no hope in hell. And it's because it's for all eternity. And so... We need, a, we need the revelation of God's wrath and his mercy because he's, he fulfilled both ends of the covenant. He fulfilled his end of the covenant, and then he <laughs> fulfilled our end of the covenant. He made, so he did everything he could to make sure that we had a way back home. Right? He's done everything that he can do to make sure we can get back home. And so he, he's just, he's worthy, for that alone, he's, he's worthy. All right, let's uh, read Luke 15. Starting in verse 11. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a famine occurred in that country. I'm, I'm doing it on my pad, but I'm not doing it for you all up here. All right, here we go. There was a, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. This is that love I'm telling you about that that we're praying into that just, in 2 Corinthians, it says the love of God compels us. That's where we want to be at with our love. It's like, man, I'm, I can't help but, like, share the, the love of God with this dude. I can't help but pray for this guy because, like, my heart's so moved with God's heart for him or her. 
Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry. He was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. He's not identifying him as his brother. This son of yours. This son of yours. How many times, we, you know, you've seen or heard that done in families like, hey, your child just put a bag of flour in the toilet. <laughs> your child, you know, it's, it's, or whatever, you know, and so... We do that. Your son just wasted a third of our inheritance. And sir, and he said to him, son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. So who was Jesus speaking to? So he was speaking to younger brothers, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, people who have openly said, I really don't want anything to do with God. I'm going to do it my way. But he was speaking to elder brothers, older brothers, who were the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers. And they were the, they were the ones trying to do everything right. And they wanted to do things so right that they started making stuff up to do right. They were adding unto the law. And um, the Bible says don't add or take away anything from the Scripture. So that's where you, they started messing up. And so this, in Luke 15, the story of the two sons is uh, the third of three rebukes that Jesus is actually giving to the Pharisees because the Pharisees are listening to him tell these parables. Now, the Pharisees didn't like Jesus, but they, but they were still pretty amazed at him. They're like, he speaks as one with authority. So they were recognizing the anointing on his life, the authority that he carried, but still they, they loved their position and the power that they had in the community more than Jesus. So they saw him as a threat. They're, they recognized the gift and the, the anointing on Jesus' life, but they were like, he's threatening this whole thing that we've set up that we're really comfortable in. How many of, how many of you uh, have had Jesus upset your comfortable life? How many of you, Jesus still does that? <laughs> if he's not, you're ignoring him. And so the, um, 
the lost sheep is the first parable, and this is highlighting Jesus, the, the Trinity. So it's highlighting Jesus, his part in the Trinity as the son, as the good shepherd. You have the lost coin. This is talking about a lamp to find the coin. This is the Holy Spirit. And then you have the lost son representing the father. And so Jesus says, this is, as only Jesus can do, the parables are like, got like 50 layers to them, you know. And so these are some of the layers, but we're, and when you rebuke somebody in that culture, it was kind of like, hey, don't do that again. The first rebuke was, hey, uh, I appreciate it if you don't step on my feet anymore. The second rebuke was like, dude, this is my space. Don't step on my feet. Third rebuke was like, hey, this is how it feels. You like people stepping on your feet? You know, so, and so it was like, hey, the third rebuke was really, it was like an insult. And the Pharisees know this. The Pharisees know that the stories are set up as rebukes. They know that he's speaking. He's like, Jesus is speaking to them. And Jesus had to rebuke the Pharisees to awaken their heart. And so sometimes your heart has to be pierced to be woken up. Sometimes you have to be offended to get woken up. Right? And, it's the, and that's the kindness of God. It's the kindness of God. And, and so, because, and you did have Pharisees that, got, that were woken up to who Jesus really was. You have Joseph of Arimathea. You had Nicodemus. And so you did have these Pharisees that, that followed Jesus as a Lord and Savior. So the lost younger son, just to review a little bit, he says, give me the share of this state that falls to me. This would have been a shocking statement and a sign of deep disrespect. He was essentially wishing his father were dead, and he, he wants his father's things, but not his father. We do this to God often. This is when we start treating God like Santa Claus. He's not Santa Claus. He's the Lord. He's king. And we, we submit to what he calls good. He's the, he's the definer of what is good and evil. All right? So this younger son, he's weary of the relationship with his father and wants out now. A, a, lot, of, a lot of us, we got to that place where we're like, listen, I want to do it. I'm ready to do life on my own. I was that way. I was like, I want freedom. That was my thing. I was just like, I just want freedom, man. I'm all about freedom. And freedom was defined as, let's do it Travis's way. And doing it Travis's way started catching up with me. And it started stinking. That was the best word I could find for it. And so it just started stinking, started catching up with me. I, I became more and more empty in the name of freedom. Let's do it Travis's way. And it just became empty. And so the older son, we turned from, so the, the, the younger son, he, now what happened to the younger son is that he came back home with a spirit of repentance. And God is the judge of where your heart's at. Because you could have two people saying, Lord, I'm sorry. And one of them sincere, the other one's not. One of them could be Saul, the other one could be David. But God's only, he's the only judge of the heart. 
But this younger son, in his heart, he, had a, he was just like, he recognized what he had done. He wanted to kind of clean up his mess. And so what, one of the things that he, was, his, that he wanted to do is he said, if I go back to my father's house, I can be hired, I can be one of his hired men. So this was different from being a servant. Sometimes we think he was just like wanting to go be a slave for his dad. But this was different. Hired men, so people that owned land back then, they just like we do today, they'd hire a plumber, they'd hire a mason. They, you know, there was guys in the community that were skilled workers, and they'd hire them out. Jesus' uh, dad, Joseph, was a carpenter, right? And so these were hired men. And so what the younger son was like, maybe I can go back, and one of these hired men that my dad uses, I can learn a trade under him, and then maybe I can pay my dad back. He was trying to make restitution with his father, and he was trying to, like, earn that restitution back. And that's a good practice. If you ever borrow a lawnmower from somebody, return it in better shape than you found it or give a gift with it back. All right, when you, if you borrow a lawnmower and that thing's all dirty and, like, you, just, you, you, you mowed some gravel while you're at it and you return it and there's, it tanks empty of gas... That person's probably not going to loan, loan you their lawnmower anymore. But if you bring it back, hey, I, I wiped it down, filled it up with gas. Hey, here's, a, here's, a, another, here's five gallons of gas to go along with that. Thank you for letting me borrow it. Then they'll be like, hey, dude, you can borrow my lawnmower anytime you want. That's restitution. Okay? So this is what the, the son's trying to do. He's trying to make restitution with his dad. But the, the father is so elated to have the son back home that he's coming, that, and he sees the repentance. And what happened, it says to the younger son, it says he came back to his senses. And, and, and that Greek word means he came, he like found himself again. That's what it means. It's like he saw himself for who he truly was. And he's, he's like, this isn't me. I'm not, I'm not this guy that, like takes the money and run and and I'm I'm my dad's son and but I've just ruined things and so maybe I'll go back home and we'll see what happens. So he had that spirit of repentance and his father saw that. Now the older son, he's out working in the fields. I've been the older son as well. And sometimes still slip into that. You don't, you don't have to choose one or the other. You can be both. You can vacillate from one to the other. And so the older son, he's working in the field. He hears a party going on. He's like, what's this? And one of the servants said, your brother's come home. Your dad's throwing a party. He's killed the fattened calf. Now, when you kill the fattened calf, like the whole, it's the whole community's there. And the father's wanting everyone to know that the younger son has been restored back to his place because everybody knew what he did to his dad when he said, drop dead, give me the inheritance, I'm gone. Like, sons would be disowned. They would never be recognized again. If they saw each other in the market, they would just walk by them. They would be dead to their family and the community. And so this was a big deal. And so he refuses to go in to perhaps the biggest public event his father has ever hosted. So when, he's, when he stays outside, this is basically he's casting a vote of no confidence in his father. Everybody knows he's like, 
uh, why is it Travis coming into the to the party? He knows everybody knows he's not coming in. The older son's actually supposed to be the host of the party if everything is working properly. He's actually supposed to be the one that's the mediator between the father and the older and the younger son. But he's out and he's he's got his arms crossed in that I dare you to bless me pose. If you recall this. Every now and then you, you preach long enough, you see somebody like this. I dare you to bless me. I cross my arms. Crossing your arms isn't bad, but if you got this, you got that look on your face. Anyways. Um, so the father comes out to him and talks with him. And this was another demeaning thing. Again, if you don't know the context and the culture, it's hard to find these, to know these things, which Americans wouldn't. He comes out to talk with him, which is, a de- again, this is demeaning. I, I've got to leave my party to talk to my son. You know, this is, these guys carried a lot of authority. And, and uh, so he goes out there to talk to his older son. Now, why is the older son so mad? First of all, he's very upset about the cost of the celebration. This is what older brothers look at. They're not very extravagant. He says, you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And so by bringing the younger son back into the family fold, he's made him an heir again with claim to one-third of, now, of the two-thirds that was left. All right, so when he asked for his inheritance, the, the father gave him a third. Now they, so so the this father and the older son are left with two-thirds. He comes back, father gives him another third of the two-thirds. So imagine you're the older son. I, now, I might, I might be mad about that too. If I'm being honest, you know, like I was like, I I mean, he's got kind of a legitimate gripe there a little bit. And, but this is what makes God God and us us. <laughs> you know, it's like that he is. This is what makes him holy. Holy means unlike any other, right? And so the invitation for us is to become holy as he is holy, to become like no other, to behave in an extraordinary way, to behave in a way that's not common for humans, to behave in a godly way. That's what it means to be holy. It's like, nobody does that. Well, he's holy. (laughs) He's not anybody. And so, older sons, they have a, they don't like extravagance. They have a, and this is, I also call this kind of orphan thinking where you just don't think that there's enough. And you, you don't have a generous spirit. You're like, so whether it's glory, recognition, money, finances, whatever it is, there's not enough. If somebody's getting glory over here, I've got I've to sweep this guy's legs so I can get the glory. This person's got finances over here. Oh, wow, they came up with a different, um, you know, invention. I've got to, like, swipe this guy's thing and, you know, try to trounce him. You know, it's just the way of the world. Like, hey, there's not enough. There's not enough creativity. I got to steal this. I got to steal that. 
It's just the way the world thinks. And so, like, when I was in college, this was my pre-Jesus days, but I had a nickname called, I was called the Stinge among, among my friends. Because we'd go to Taco Bell, we didn't have much money, and I'd get the, the smallest cup because they had, Taco Bell has the drink fountain. That's part of the reason why we, got there, we went there and says, hey, you keep filling up that drink, baby. So I got the smallest cup, 59 cent, small cup at the soda fountain. Now, one of my buddies was a bigger stench than me, and he, didn't, he got the water cup. You know, he got like two bean burritos, which were like, I mean, we ate for like $1.79. And so he, he, he got the water cup, and he's like, Trav, let me get some of that soda, man. I was like, dude. I paid 59 cents. He's like, come on, man. Let me, he's like, let, me, let me get a sip. I was like, fine. And I'd take the cup, and I would hold it for him. And right when it touched his lips, I'd draw it back. I was like, there you go. He's like, come on, man. I was like, if you want soda, buy you a soda drink. And I was dead serious. So my friends called me the stench. When people would come into our apartment, now this is, I mean, this was 50-50, I have to admit. Some people come in, they just start eating your food. I was like, I ain't, no. <laughs> Not in here. Now, now they were rude because they weren't asking permission, but on the other hand, I just was like, nobody touches my food. Roommates, strangers, you're not touching my food, all right? And so... <clears throat> This is, when I think about the older son, I think about it, I was like, man, that was total older brother move I used to walk in back in the day. And so he's stingy. He's not extravagant. Now, this is the thing about God. God, and I, I heard this from Bill Johnson, I think it's really true. The way to think about God's generosity, the way he gives, God is extravagant, but he doesn't like waste. And, what, he may, and what, I, what I think the point is of that is you need to value what God gives you. You need to value what he gives you. So maybe you've only got a twin-size mattress and you're longing for a California king. But you need to thank God for the twin mattress. And then one day, maybe you get a California king. But it's, it's still... It's, it's, maintaining that, uh, that thankful heart in whatever circumstances you have, whether you have little or great. Paul said, doesn't matter. I've learned to be content in all circumstances. I've had much. I've had little. doesn't matter. So where's the justice? Because this is what's offending the older brothers. Like, where's the justice? I have been working. I deserve the fattened calf. That was mine. I had my eye on that calf. I named it Tenderloin. <laughs> and he had, you know, and their Tenderloin's already been taken. And he's, he's like, what? I already had my eye on it. He had plans. He's like, one day, Father's going to recognize me in front of the whole community, just like, my other son left town, but this son has stayed and has been faithful. Arise, my son. You know, and so, like, that's what the old, I just imagine older brothers think that way. It's like, man, one day 
Like when I first God called me into ministry, I was like, man, I'm going to have a 3,000-person church. I'm going to have a radio show, TV show. Because that was the only definition of success in my eyes at that time. And thank God God saved me from that. Because there's like only, like, a, you take a hand and on the, there's like a dot on the fingertip of pastors that have that. And so it's not a goal. And it's not even, and all ministry in God's eyes is small. He's currently expanding the universe. That's his ministry. Billy Graham, millions of people saved. Small ministry in God's eyes. Everything's small to him. So he's not impressed. And he's like, I gave that to you anyways. So even less impressed. And so, like, we just, we're just called to be faithful with what he gives us. And that's my prayer is I like, God, just help me be faithful with what you've given me. Because then I know that's where my reward's great is just being faithful. And so he's thinking, I've worked, I've done, I've never disobeyed you. Now, this is going to step on our toes. It steps on my toes. Because this thinking, what the son is saying, I've never, I've never disobeyed you. I have rights. I have rights. Okay, you made this decision without my, my input. I wasn't consulted. I have rights. And so the oldest brother's fury leads him to disgrace his father even further. And what we do with God is when we are obeying him to earn something, ultimately we end up trying to leverage that on God for control. When I'm like, look at what I've done. What we're saying is, we're doing this. God, look what what I've done, so you're supposed to do this. Who's in control? We are. And so I've been battling like a GI track uh, affliction, I guess I'll call it. But And so some of the things that started popping into my mind were some of this older brother thinking. It's like, God, like I've, I've like forsaken some things for you. Lord, I'm a, I'm a bivocational pastor. Lord, I've, I've given up earning potential. Like I could make more money than I could make right now. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm having to deal with this. All right, that's older brother thinking. And then, sir, I, fortunately, I recognize this. Like, Lord, I repent of older brother thinking. Get it out. And so it's not wrong to have the things come up and tempt you to start believing that way. Because that's, that's what it was. I didn't even, it wasn't as much of like, uh, I didn't take ownership of those thoughts. Because what did Satan do to Adam and Eve? He's like, did God say this? So he's tempting them with lies, right? And so the enemies in, this, in the midst, he's wanting to tempt you with the lies like, you deserve better. You deserve better than this. You, I mean, look what you've done. I don't know many people that have done that. And, I'm, and then you go to India. You go to Africa. 
and you got pastors living off $60 a month, and they're praising the Lord for a bicycle because they can go to the next village to preach the gospel. And so the older brother thinking leverages control over God. I've done this, so you have to do this, God. Instead of, you know what, Lord, I don't, I don't understand everything right now, but you're good. You know what is good, and I trust you, and I also trust your heart. And so in this time of, you know, dealing with this GI issue, I started reading Job. And in Job, I was like, Lord, Job was, first of all, he had everything materially taken away. He, he lost seven sons and three daughters. I mean, tr like, tr Job, I mean, it's like the most tragic things that could happen to a person happen to him. And, and so Satan, he said, God, if you extend your hand and you, and you take everything away that he has, he'll curse you to your face. Now, God said, this is what you, I want you to remember from Job. God's hand didn't touch Job, even though Satan asked him to touch Job. Satan's hand touched Job. And so Satan hit, hit all those areas of Job's life, and then he said he came back. Job was still praising the Lord. He said, now if you touch his body, he'll curse you. And God gave Satan permission. But Satan's hand touched Job. It was, and so it, as I was asking the Lord about this, I felt it was very, very clear. The Lord said about my GI issue, he said, this is not my hand. Now I don't understand all the, even the mystery in that of like how Satan could touch Job and all these things. And, and I, don't, I don't, haven't met anybody that does know that. <laughs> so you're going to have to be okay with some mystery of that. All I know is that God has made it clear. Jesus healed everybody that came to him. He says to release heaven on earth. There's no afflictions in heaven. There's no afflictions on earth. And he, and he said that to me. It's, it's changed my life because the, what, what the Lord spoke, he said, that's not my hand. That's not my hand. I don't, I don't know exactly why it's happening, but all I know is it's, it's not God's hand. All right? And so older brother thinking is, wants to know, is going to have trouble with not knowing. Because everything is a cause and effect. What did Job's counselors come to him and say? Well, you had to have messed up somewhere. Or else none of these things would happen. God punishes only the wicked. He doesn't punish the righteous. Job's like, dude, you are a horrible counselor. He, tell, he literally says, he's like, y'all are like the worst counselors ever. He says, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. And then, and so Job rails on the Lord after that. And what I mean, he, but he never curses God. He's just like, God, why are you doing this? I don't understand. I have, you know, he's pleading his case, his older brother case before the Lord. But he keeps his, this is the key for Job. He kept his heart before the Lord. He never cursed God and was like, forget you. And this is the thing, if you're suffering, 
if you turn from the God, things are only going to get worse. But if you actually throw yourself upon God, there's only hope for better. But if you turn away from the Lord, it's definitely going to get worse. So Job didn't turn from the Lord, even in his complaint. And then the key for Job, I'm getting off track. I'm, I might preach in y'all another sermon, but it's all right. And so, so the key for Job was he kept his heart before the Lord. He was honest before the Lord. And then Job, when you're in a place of suffering, you have to have an encounter with God. There's a woman who lost six of her children in a car accident. And she said the only thing that kept, she had, she was at the lowest of lows struggling with her faith and then she had an encounter with God and he didn't explain anything to her, but she encountered him and and it turned her heart to God. She says, I'm at the best place in my life with God. That's the, I mean, that's like horrible. The most horrible thing that can happen in, in my eyes. And so Job is in, his, his body is rotting. He says he's like, he looks like a skeleton. He's got boils. He's shaved his, his head. He, he looks like he's been in a concentration camp. That's what the, his, the, the story describes him as. And he has an encounter with God where God for three, or, three chapters says who he is. Job. Did you call forth the eagle from its nest? Did you tell the waves to stop here? Did you store up hail in its storehouse? Tell me if you know these things. And he goes on and on and on. And Job said, I should have been quiet, Lord. I repent in dust and ashes. And he said, pray for your counselors because they don't know me. Job prays for them. And then God, this is what I'm saying, God gave him double he gave him double to restore him and make things new. And in, the, in this life or in the next life, you will get double if you throw yourself upon the Lord, which is what Job did. So further disgrace from the older brother. He refuses to address his father in the elaborately respectful manner that inferiors address superiors. So he doesn't say, esteemed father. He says, look, look here. He's talking to him like a kid. Mm. Now, I know my daddy. Uh -uh. (laughs) Woo. Remember, I don't play that. So a modern-day equivalent might be a son writing a humiliating tell-all memoir that destroys his dad's career and reputation. Because he's doing this in front of everybody. Look here. Look here, dad. You're like, mm. And, you know, that response that we all, I mean, at least I have, that's what that dad would have had. It's like, Cameron, I'm going to whip your tail. But the father could have disowned him on the spot, but instead shows mercy as well to his eldest son. And so Jesus starts redefining what sin is between these two sons. One of my kids called me, uh, they accidentally called me bruh the other day. I, I did it. I did it. They, they, they immediately said they're sorry. I was like, they were like, bruh. And I went, what? And they're like, dad, uh, sir, sir. I said, just for the record, don't ever call me bruh. All right. 
I know your friends, your friends are doing that. Don't ever call me bro. I'm dad. Thank you. And so, so these, uh, Jesus is redefining sin. The two lost sons reveal to us the two main ways people try to find happiness and fulfillment. One is through self-discovery. The second is through moral conformity. All right? So each is a way of finding personal significance and worth, addressing the ills of the world, world and determining right from wrong. How many religions do we have that really try to be really good? Many. <laughs> it's too many to, to name. I mean, we just unroll a scroll. And, and Christians do this as well. We fall into that. And so the Pharisees, they represent the approach of moral conformity. They put the will of God in the standards of the community ahead of individual fulfillment, right? So they have more of a corporate identity. When we fall into this approach, we're judged by how abject and intense our regret is. This is, so in this view, even in our failures, we must measure up. <laughs> so you mess up, you got to like, this is why they did the dust and ashes thing. But look, I'm really sorry. And they're like tearing their clothes. I mean, how you, you read the scriptures and the, the Pharisees, they hear something blasphemous. Ah! And they tear their robes. This is the, the drama. but it's like, ah! And they tear their robes. They're like, look how offensive that is to me. But that's... But that's what they had to do. When you, when you earn stuff, then you get, then, and you got to earn forgiveness, then you got to look at, look at this. And so you're judged by your failures as well, like how, you, how regretful you are. Now, the, young, the younger brother represents the approach of self-discovery. And this paradigm holds that individuals must be free to pursue their own, goal, own goals and self-actualization, regardless of custom and convention. So in this view, the world would be a far better place if tradition, prejudice, hierarchical authority, and other barriers to personal freedom were weakened or removed. Now, both of these approaches have glimmers of truth in them, but they're, they're twisted. So both self-discovery enthusiast and moral conformist are self-righteous. They're depending on their rightness or how right they are. You know, we have right now um, a political system that jockeys for self-righteousness on both sides. I've thought about posting this on Facebook, and my wife is my Facebook filter. And so I, I, I thought about Posting, self-righteousness is the bane of America right now. And because self-righteousness does this, you're wrong, you're wrong. I want to know everybody, give me a list. Every, I want to know everybody that's supporting this. I want, we're going to do this. We're going to punish them. And so it's just a bunch of point, finger pointing. Isaiah 58 tells you what finger pointing does for you. You can go read that. I don't have time. And so there are moral conformists who slip into self-discovery as a release valve, and then there are self-discovery 
People who regard religious conservatives with all the self-righteous and condescension of the worst Pharisee. It's called calling the, the pot, calling the kettle black. It's called becoming what you have judged, Romans 2.1. You, you become so for freedom and self-actualization that if you don't think like me, you're out. They deserve to be free. Get out of here. Never mind that you're saying I get to think the way I want to think. And so the self-freedom, self-discovery person can be just as religious and pharisaical as the moral conformist. It's a formula. That's why it doesn't work. G Holy Spirit and Jesus are right there in the radical middle. They're in the tension. That's why people don't like it. It's because you've got to actually have a relationship with God. It's not a formula. You can follow a formula of self-discovery, formula of religious conformity right here where you, you're being led by the wind, by the Spirit of God. It's, it's, there's tension, and it re requires sacrifice. It requires you listening. requires your heart engaged. That's why we don't like it because we're asleep. We want to sleepwalk. So the older brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It's not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he has in his moral record. Both brothers only valued their father for his wealth and not his love. And the older brother's obedience was his way of leveraging control with God to put God in a position where he owes them. Both sons resented their father's authority and sought ways to get out from under it. They each wanted to get into a position where they could tell the father what to do. Each one, in other words, rebelled. But one did so by being very bad and the other by being extremely good. So you can avoid Jesus by keeping all the moral laws. You can actually avoid him. That's what I'm talking about. You, can, you don't have to be in the middle. You can avoid him. You don't need a savior both of these approaches, you don't need a savior. You already have one yourself. You have become God. This is the original sin. I want to be like God. I want to be God. That's the original sin. Nothing is new under the sun. It's the same today. I want to be God. God's not having any part of it. He's, what did I pray this morning? I'm the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to any idols. He is a jealous God. And he is jealous for Jesus to receive everything that he paid for. God looks at Jesus and he says, my son didn't die for nothing. He's going to get what he paid for. So Jesus' radical redefinition of sin, we people define sin as breaking a list of rules or one of the rules. Jesus redefines sin as this. Sin is not just breaking the rules. It's putting yourself in, in place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge, just as each son sought to displace the authority of the Father in their own life. And so how is the gospel of Jesus Christ unique? The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about religion or irreligion, morality or immorality, 
moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism. In Jesus Christ's gospel, everyone is wrong. And everyone is loved. And everyone is invited to repent and change. That's the gospel. We're all in the same boat. Older brothers divide the world into two parts, the moral and the immoral. Younger brothers divide the world and, and do the same thing. The open-minded slash tolerant versus the bigoted slash narrow-minded. Now, Jesus, he also divides the world, the people into two categories. Just go ahead and forward it for me. There you go. He also divides people into two groups, the humble and the proud. That's Jesus' division. Luke 18, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the people who confess that they aren't particularly good or open-minded are moving towards God. Because the prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know you need it. So you, when you confess, you, so I did myself a favor today about confessing. Lord, I had some older brother thinking. I'm moving towards God. If you aren't particularly open-minded, you're not particularly good, guess what? And you recognize you need help. God's running to meet you. But if you have that attitude of, I pretty much know what's going on then God's, it's hard to find God in that place. But the moment you do, you become like the younger son, you humble yourself and you're like, I'm, I'm going to go back to father's house. I, you come to your senses and you're like, anything in my father's house is better than where I'm at right now. And then God always surprises you by giving you abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine. And that's what he did for his younger son. He's like, I'll just be a hired hand, and that'll be, a, that'll be a pretty good life. If I can just do that, repay my father, he's not even going to recognize me as, my, as, my, as his son. That's fine. I just want to repay back what I, what I took and just live a simple life as a hired man. And he comes home. He's, he's got a speech ready. Father, I realize I'm not worthy to be called your son. Stop, son. Come on, and he embraces him. It says he embraced him. And I can just imagine the surprise of the sons that he had because he's expecting, maybe his, other fathers, if they even recognized him, would come with a belt to beat him. And instead, father comes with an embrace and says, it's time to throw a party because you were lost. But now you're home. 
and it says he put on the best robe on him, and the best robe in the in the house belongs to the father. So the father puts his very own robe on him to bring him back. And that's that's what's called the homecoming. And the older brother, he needs the homecoming. He needs the home uh, the homecoming. In Luke 15, Jesus ends it where the brother is questioning his father. And so it's open-ended, like, what will you choose? Will you choose the, the homecoming like the younger son? Or will you stay in the fields and work and think about what you deserve? We don't deserve anything. We're all wrong. We're all sinners. Like, everything that God gives us is abundantly extravagant. And this, this is the gospel. And I read in I read in First Corinthians thirteen, and it's, it described love. I want to tell you, I would just please want everyone to know that God has given me in my sphere of influence. Tolerance is not love. It says that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. So if you're a Bible believing Christian, when somebody is choosing the younger brother road and they're spending their inheritance and they're calling it the love of God. It's not the love of God. It's humanism. The love of God does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth. And so you approach people in love and you're like, brother, you're killing yourself. You're killing yourself. This is not good. Like, there's a better way. There's a better way. Like, Father's got a better way for you, man. And maybe they hear you, maybe they don't. It doesn't matter. It's like I told, you know, we were giving some, some counsel to some people a few weeks ago. Weren't real sure they were paying attention to what we had to say. And I was talking with Jessica. I said, we're just a messenger. Like, that's all we are. I can't, I can't make anybody believe anything. But it says, Surprisa said, he says, I, I tell the truth and then I let Holy Spirit do the rest. And so that's all we want to be. We want to tell the truth and let Holy Spirit do the rest. And we do it in the spirit of love. We don't do it with the pointing finger. We don't, we don't do it the way the world does it. We don't do it the way the world does it. We're not of this world.